wisdom traditions at their best teach you what a a humble and life-giving hermeneutic is in relationship to your tradition. So you obviously will embody it and pass it on well. But that hermeneutic of the divine, where God is where we live, move, and have our being, is something we can then apply to all encounters with the other, be it aesthetic encounters or physical encounters, these kinds of things. In this episode of Conversations in Process, Jay McDaniel is joined by the one and only Trip Fuller. Trip is a process theologian and host of the Homebrew Christianity podcast, and he is also a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. Tripp also puts on some very interesting process theological events, such as the upcoming theology beer camp, The God Pods Strike Back, coming up in October of this year. And guess what? Our very own Jay McDaniel of Conversations in Process will be there. So stay tuned for that. In this conversation, uh, Jay and Trip uh, venture into some more personal territory. We get to learn a bit more about Trip's experience of his faith and understanding of music and uh, how he brings his faith into his family life. So a bit of a, a different look at uh, someone who's likely very familiar to you. Enjoy. So uh, let's get started. I'm curious myself. How did you get so interested in theology and what were the formative influences on you early on, both religious and ostensibly non-religious, music, the natural world, family, uh, life experiences, that kind of thing? Can you get us started in that way? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I grew up in rural North Carolina most of my childhood until basically middle school. And I was a Baptist preacher's kid. And I I usually tell people that meant the religious diversity I was around was the kind of Baptist you were mm-hmm. in North Carolina. So, you know, we had the, the giant spectrum of free will, missionary Baptist, <laughs> Southern Baptist, like, you know, that it, it was the variations. And um, it was also um, uh, like I remember in elementary school when we had our first African-American student at the elementary school and the first Jewish one mm-hmm. and how just having them as friends occasioned questions because uh, my family are avid readers and, uh, and and things, the the good question in the home turned into, well, why don't you look at this or read this and then we'll talk about it. And so the intellectual side was always encouraged. There's my parents had a giant library and valued education. We were the edgy Baptist in that world, you know, mm-hmm. um, like women were allowed to do things at church, uh, mm-hmm. that, that kind of stuff. Like when my dad performed an interracial marriage, the Klan burned a cross on the mm-hmm. church lawn. Like, so I, it's, it, I always try to give those things as most people that know me just know me after I was on the internet and you could find things mm-hmm. and they're like, well, he's kind of wild and crazy if you're, you grew up in that space. But I'm like, no, 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 that's what my neighbors mm-hmm. were tobacco fields mm-hmm. and a church. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, but because the intellectual thing was something important to my parents, good questions got books. And then they said, then we'll talk to you about it. So mm-hmm. I, the, the first big one, 
religiously was fourth grade. It was Holy Week. And uh, and for those that aren't Christian, like the last week of Jesus' life leading up to Easter. And I read all four Gospels, accounts of Holy Week, and like a Baptist, made a chart about Bible, but not for foreign policy reasons, Jay. It was uh, for for like outlining what's going on. I noticed, well, Jesus says completely different things on the cross, right? In Mark, Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's out. And then you get an empty tomb and an experience of women, and they said they were scared and didn't tell anyone. But you compare that to the Gospel of John. When Jesus comes to get arrested, he's not sweating bullets. They're like, where's Jesus? And he jumps up and says, I am, you know, echoing the name of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they all fall down, and he's in charge, right? And he gets he gets done and goes, well, I think I'm done now. It is finished. In Luke, you get just the conversation between the two next to him. Matthew, you get zombies running around Jerusalem at the death of Jesus, right? Like these, it, it, it's not just Jesus that raised from the dead. There is, you know, it, so uh, I, I'm outlining this. Jesus says different things. Different people are there. Uh, what day of the Passover celebration Jesus died isn't the same. And I remember thinking to myself, not, wow, this is wild, crazy diversity is here. I thought my Bible's broken. So I called my parents and got them in there. And I'm like, look at my chart. And I remember them looking at me and going, no, no, it's not broken. That's what's in there. I'm like, what in the world? Who, who was the editor on this thing? Don't you think it would have been important to at least have a clarifying account of the death and resurrection? You know, and I, and I remember this conversation and them talking to me about like, well, I mean, even, even things we've all, we would all talk about, oh, that was the greatest trip when we went on spring break to, to Florida and saw the baseball game, went fishing and went to Disney. And, but if we all took our versions, it would be a little different. And now imagine years later, and everyone knows this is the most important story they're going to tell. And then, and so what gets attached to it? All their loves and all their, and all their ongoing experience with the divine. And then you get these story anyway, you know, and they're trying to like, we know this account that doesn't make it untrue, but the truth isn't what you're looking for, right? A, a seamless, harmonious, perfect, objective, settled account. Uh, and, and that was w when I got handed a book. <laughs> And uh, I don't even, I remember the cover, but I don't remember the name of it. It was some book that was kind of explaining the basics of the gospel's composition and history. And I didn't understand it. I just knew I wanted to. So after that, anytime I got good questions, they would come up. Um, having, uh, when we moved to Raleigh and uh, for- Let me stop you there. Let me stop you before. Yeah. So how old were you um, as you're telling that story? How, how old were you at that, at that time? So- 10 or 11. Okay. And, you know, it's my experience that Baptists always know a whole lot more about the Bible than I do. I grew up a Methodist. How did you learn the Bible and how did you think of the Bible as a very young child at age 10? Was it an yeah, inerrant yeah. text and then you no. were shocked or what? My family were the ones that got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention during the fundamentalist takeover. So, like, I grew up thinking all truth is God's truth. Uh, they made fun of, you know, not in front of them, uh, fundamentalists, because they're like, that's not even what's in the Bible. Like, no, anyway, my dad's was in a church history PhD program during the takeover. And as uh, his people, all the committee got fired, you know, for not signing things. He later finished his doctorate at Drew uh, when I was 
around that age is when he was mm-hmm. doing it. So we were not normal for rural North Carolina. I see. But but the Bible itself for Baptist, you're right. Like I didn't know that people could go to bed without reading the Bible and praying. Mm-hmm. I still have trouble doing it. I have to be inebriated because mm-hmm. I just have done it my whole life. And so my primary piety is reading a sacred text and having an ongoing conversation with the living spirit of the divine. And if so I do it well, it, it translates to how I relate to my neighbors, hopefully my enemies, you know, and that kind of thing. Let, let me get clear on that last part. So except when you're inebriated, you do read the Bible uh, before oh. you go to bed, even now? Oh, yeah. Do you really? Yeah, it's sitting right there on my stand. It has been redone. My my parents got it redone after it died because this has all my all the you know notes from. Well, I was a I was a minister for fifteen years and have all my degrees. So, well, uh, I don't want to. I want to go back to to the early trip, but while we're at the current trip right now, uh, how do you read? Do you follow a lectionary or just let the spirit guide you, or do you have some kind of system that you follow? For the I. I have not gotten good at a system after I was a congregational minister for 15 years through PhD program and after. Then I used the lectionary because I was at uh, mainline Protestant churches that Mm -hmm. did, and it became helpful to have education, spiritual formation things following the church year and the texts that then show up in worship. After that, I've spent more time digging in into specific areas. I also have like developed a new love for the Psalms at night oh, really? when, when I put our, when I do bedtime, I'm the, I'm the, I don't have as much religious baggage as my partner. So she's like, I hope you hand off the faith in the joyful way you have it. Cause I, God and I aren't always on talking terms. So I'm the normal one for doing the facilitating piety at night. So now it started in lockdown. I got this beautiful translation of the Psalms for Children that uh, Sparkhouse, so it's a ELCA, the Liberal Lutherans did. And they have uh, probably 60 or so of the Psalms translated in a vocabulary that the children can recognize the words they use for their emotions in it. But also it has all the biblical imagery still. And at night, our five-year-old and nine-year-old, but I started doing this three years ago, they were younger, they would pick the psalm and their art for each one, like very kid art, but which is the one that captures how you're feeling today? And then let's use the words of sacred text to help us narrate our experience of life in the divine story. And these have been handed down before Jesus was around, you know, and these kind of things like these are the, these are our texts. And so it started doing that with them because of all these feelings they had in lockdown. And we didn't have um, like the, the very kind of spiritual technologies to, to facilitate the (laughs) invisible reality becoming palpable are really, really uh, undercut in lockdown. They don't get a giant group of friends where they are affirmed and of, of their status as the beloved of God and then encouraged to think through what that means in their level. All these things that churches do beautifully in their best days weren't there. And so it was me. Now I did that, uh, and my wife did that. We're both ordained uh, for years. So trying to figure it out, but the Psalms there became something for them to talk about. Like, I can't sleep, God, what do I do? Right. And you mm-hmm. know, those passages where Israel mm-hmm. goes, 
here's my experience. I don't know you. I can't see you. Where are you? Do you listen to me? And then what happens in the Psalms? When I can't hear you, I think of all that you have given me. And it names all of creation, the beautiful things. And then it names the ways God has showed up faithful in the past. And then says, that is who you are. And I trust you hear me. Boom. Or you are the great nightlight. You are the big, your hand is my big pillow. Like these beautiful little things that then take what was it that Israel had permission to do because they trusted the reality of God, voice all of their experience, and then remind each other that who we are, are the people that tell these stories, right? Where there was the, 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 there was the, there was the, uh, uh, the, the image of creation, right? Like a, the, the bird hovering over the water or the artisan crafting with all those are in the Psalms. Those kind of images and stuff there with them became ways they got to voice and share their life and lockdown before God with me. And that sent me back to uh, reading them, uh, reading yeah. them again. Trip, what do you do uh, with the Psalms that seem to valorize anger, resentment, retribution with your kids? Well, well I would say the 40% of the Psalms that get in the kids one are not like the, you know, I'd like to bust that kid's head up, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. rock, not rock them with the, not drop them in the stones and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, when you don't think that a sacred text is a settled, final, perfect articulation of the perfect life and the account mm -hmm. of God, then the fact that we treasure and then say, you will live a more human life if you give yourself permission to say these things mm -hmm. and speak these things, that the divine doesn't flinch at our brutal honesty or mm -hmm. our anger and all that kind of stuff. It's, to me, part of returning to the text uh, of the Psalms is recognizing how so much of our religious space and institutions uh, want us to mute and cut out sections of real human experience and those sections weren't cut out or muted in Scripture. Mm -hmm. so sometimes okay. I have an ally in the psalmist yeah. who is as judgmental towards your bigoted backwards neighbor as I am, and they know by the end of the psalm that God still loves them dearly. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they, they, or, or take like the story of Jonah, right? Like yeah. the yeah. most successful prophet is the one that's pissed he was that successful. All uh, right. Hey. Anyway. Okay, well, let's go back to that early trip, but quickly move forward. Um, a, a question about your your early years. I know you were interested, uh, influenced by religion, by theology, by your family, by these big questions, et cetera. Were there other influences, or was that kind of it in terms of your own spiritual pilgrimage? How about music? How oh, about yeah. friendships? How about the natural world? Um, well, the friendship thing, like I, just mentioning, like I remember uh, Greta and Elvis, those were the two, the first African-American student and the Jewish student in this small rural elementary school, that the friendship has always played a big role. When I moved to Raleigh in uh, the capital city for North Carolina, my family were church planting. We were like the first church that met in the movie theater with a rock band for music. Um, mm. And I went to art magnet school. So, you know, you audition for an art, you get in. So from sixth grade through 12th, I did theater for basically after lunch every day through the rest of the school day was theater. So um, despite being in the South, uh, being a uh, straight, white, uh, Protestant was not normative for my most of my biggest friends. So there are plenty of individuals there. My best friend, Raphael, was a devout Jew. 
uh, who he says, Trip, I know I can't be your favorite, but I can be your second favorite Hebrew. And 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 so that re and there were plenty of other Jewish friends in that, uh, obviously in theater, despite uh, I don't think rural North Carolina knew anything other than straight people. Uh, well, uh, in a context of affirmation, lots of people get more honest about themselves. And mm -hmm. I had to figure out what to make sense of that. Uh, there were also mm -hmm. other religious traditions that weren't monotheist there. One of my best friends on the bus was Hindu, and that made absolutely no sense to me at first. You know, and I had all the ideas that like Southern religion tells you, well, they're polytheist, right? And then, you know, now uh, I saw him not too long ago because we moved back to North Carolina, and I was like, oh, no, no, no. Um, I actually like, I think I have like deep metaphysical ties with you, you know, and I'm sitting there explaining lives like, you got to understand Whitehead. Listen to this. He's like, yeah, yeah it's just like, that's how we do things. You know, I was like, have you heard about dual aspect monism? And he's like, yeah, I didn't know that's what it's called, but that's how we see the world. Uh, okay. Like, um, you know, so in, in addition to the friendships, music um, was as well. I was in musical theater and stuff and in, uh, all that goes in the theater department was extremely yeah. important. Really you get at home in your body and your voice in working with communities. Like every day for the three hours that we do theater, you begin laying on the floor, basically doing contemplative practice. Uh, you get over all sorts of stuff, you know, where you can and can't do and how you have to trust other people. Um, we won all sorts of awards and many of them were uh, my group of friends. We won twice for like, uh, best comedy, one act comedy, and it was three or four of us that w developed the whole thing in improv, and none of us could have come it on it on our own. And yet, we won the high school one act self, you know, self written one act, and then the seniors the year after us, because we all graduated, performed it at the Edinburgh Festival, it, the French oh, okay. Festival in Edinburgh, because we won for the nation. Like the, but that whole creative process, the, uh, so like. I, I think you can intuit like why process made perfect sense to me. The way the Bible functioned for my piety was learning to talk to God while wrestling with testimonies from historic people. And then rest uh, understanding that relational dynamic of the divine in relationship to friends in with the mm -hmm. arts uh, as in the rural areas, I went fishing all the time and lived around nature and in, in those kind of things. So the, I would say my formation and such, uh, that kind of relational framework for faith existed from the beginning. It expanded the horizons where I would encounter what I met in Christ. If you're, you know, you're using so, Christian language. Um, just a word about music. Uh, was music important to you? And if so, what music did you listen to and enjoy? Ooh, yeah. I, I'm, I love music. Uh, I love live music and group singing. I will do almost any of them I can do. If you've ever been to, big homebrewed Christianity events, the opening night almost always involves 90s karaoke because some people with religious trauma don't want to sing religious songs. And then some of them know these ones and don't know these ones. But if you are between uh, 25 and 45, the average age of most people that show up, uh, after three beers, everyone can sing um, Pearl Jam together. And, <laughs> you know, and and what are they? Anyway, so the, the music is always there. I I was in, you know, all the choirs and stuff at church in theater and singing. Um, I was in, I played music and worship in, uh, in church and then in college at campus ministry groups and such. And then I was in uh, rock bands and we had our Christian version of things and the, what we played in secular context. But I think in many 
many ways, the disenchantment of modernity has kind of squeezed out all the spaciousness of so many parts of our lives. One of the places that still exists for people that can't figure out how to use the word God in any constructive way that have because of the way modernity has structured our lives, we've disengaged ourselves from the natural order and don't think about it, let alone tend to it. Um, we have a kind of attentiveness to the immediate present, needing to accelerate, needing to go faster, more efficient, and all these things that short circuit you from cultivating the kind of attentiveness that poetry and these kinds of things uh, uh, open us up. But one of the few places of like deep season yes. communal transcendence is music. In all yeah. sorts of varieties. Other, I think the biggest one left is sports. The problem with sports is it's always tied to some tribal identity, you know, the team, the combative, and this kind of thing. And that I think that, which I do it, like I am the most obnoxiously Laker Dodger fan. So this isn't saying like I don't do that, but it's not as beautiful to me as the first big concert I went to in Los Angeles was U2 at the Rose Bowl. It eras every generation race, religion, all there. And uh, if you've ever seen them live, it's basically structured like a giant mass and everyone knows all the songs. And then you're sitting there singing it. And you're like, uh, if you weren't there, you wouldn't know that that was possible. And then if you were there, you go, I guess that is possible in the next day. That's one of the reasons I love music is it it invites us to be honest in some sense, like it's solidarity for the immediate and emotive rather than solidarity on like an idea or a vision and these kind of things that then the disenchanted logic of modernity starts. We've already internalized how to deconstruct everything. But like uh, when you start singing along with a songwriter that's telling the truth about your life better than you will, you can do right now, then uh, something beautiful happens, which, which is, you know, what I was describing earlier. I've why I've reengaged the Psalms is it gave me permission, like as, in the middle of my life and acknowledging a lot of the things I've spent much time hiding and running from music can do that. The Psalms did it for me. Uh, and just there, not a lot of people when they meet their therapist in the week are like, they're going, what are you thinking about? Well, Psalm 87, it's made me think, you know, so I, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. So what well, you what's your favorite to album? For? What's your favorite album, Jay? I love, I love, I'm sorry, I've run podcasts too much, so it's hard for me not to ask follow-up questions. But like if Jay McDaniel got uh, like your five best friends and you're going to get pristine brand new album on a record player, you'll, everyone has their favorite beverage, you're going to sit around and listen to it, which which album are you going to put on? I would put on uh, Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. Ooh. I would put on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. And... I, I might put on a Joni Mitchell's Blue. So that's my generation. But I I really, really love music, and it's all kinds. And I play in bands also. Uh, and I play at Assisted Living Center's uh, sing-along music. I mm -hmm. do it three times a week for folks with dementia. And I play at a, a little um, country restaurant to play tonight. We play pop country, Eagles, Beatles, uh, country music. So I'm big on music, and it's interesting to me what you say. I think the same, that music seems to open up a kind of shared humanity. And, and actually, interestingly, a kind of mysticism. Mm -hmm. if mysticism means 
uh, awakening to the more emotive sides uh, of life. It takes us into what Whitehead would call subjective forms, moods, emotions, um, mm -hmm. that we might otherwise be unaware of. And it can bring us together, albeit sometimes in tribal ways, because we like our music and we identify with our music. And sometimes we can dismiss other kinds. But no, everything you say makes such sense to me. I have two sons uh, younger than I, needless to say, 31 and 34. And so they grew up on rap. Mm -hmm. and, and they got me interested in, in rap and hip hop. So you name it, I'm for it. But those are the three albums I'd probably take with me to a desert island. I think you're right mm -hmm. about the Psalms, too. I just did a Sunday school class last week, an adult Sunday school class on Bob Dylan, a psalmist. And, and I was making the case that his lyrics actually take us into places all over the place actually that we feel and know tenderness anger resentment mm -hmm. hope fear depression um, it, it functions psalmically um, so i'm just on board with you on all that what about jared if we were coming over to your house and everything set up for uh like friends sharing the experience of an album. What what's Jared going to turn on? I'd probably put on a Sigur Rós uh, record, the Icelandic post rock band, uh, longtime favorite of mine. More recently, uh, I'm wearing a t shirt right now. Uh, Me without you. Uh, oh yeah, love love their stuff uh, these past few years. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and you know what's funny though is, right? Like you, Jay, like your kids experience with that kind of music that wasn't yours then right. made you interested in getting to know it right um and i'm sitting there going oh when this replays i'm going to have to write down Icelandic icelandic rock band <laughs> to go check out right because i'm like oh i'm interested like i i know enough of jared and we've hung out after at the last process of it and stuff i'm like i'm interested and then you will listen to those records differently because the person you care about and know or your friend is like this gets at something that I would love for it to share with you that I can't just tell you directly. That to me, is that kind of relationships making valid an aesthetic experience you would never pick is true. It's also true in food, right? Like when you have a new neighbor or a new friend that uh, has very different spice cabinets than yours or the lack of spice cabinets after three years in Scotland. But both those, I think that the process vision of religious pluralism makes the most sense of that. That's what we would really love to do. I would, I want my process friends that aren't Baptists that grew up in my space and stuff to be able to listen to how the creative transformation of the divine has been working itself through in my faith and in story and my tradition. And then they can listen to it and go, oh, hell yeah, I get that. You make more sense to me. And then I get to be transformed by turning on their record which I'm not in charge of. The only thing I'm doing right then is listening. But we know it transforms you because these, these pieces of art capture something that uh, is becomes integral to the person, right? Like if if we all, it, like if y'all came over, I would be like, I want to listen to August and Everything After by Counting Crows or Audible Sigh and uh, by Vigilantes of Love. And then y'all are going to be like, well, I'm not surprised that there's like the perfect, I'm the perfect age for Counting Crows. And 
if you're from the South and Americana and alt country became popular, it's not surprising that I'd like to have a favorite one uh, that uh, also uses large amounts of religious imagery in counterintuitive ways and is indie enough. I feel hip by mentioning it that you don't know, you know, like, but when you listen to those, you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. And then you'd be like, wow, Trip actually repeats a number of those lines and probably thought he thought of them. Anyway, so the, I think the process relational vision gives us ways, just like appreciating different music that you share with a friend that we learn and grow from. We also learn to do that with wisdom traditions. Or as I think it was John Tatamanol that used the image, but I've used it so much since then, that one of the gifts of a process vision is that when you encounter a new faith tradition or a new wisdom tradition or a new uh, practice, it's like expanding the spice cabinet of your cooking. Not because you stopped making what your mom and dad made that where you fell in love with a good meal with friends, but because, well, I was missing out until I learned how to make curry in Scotland because it's literally the only food with flavor uh, in the in the whole. They have salt and pepper, most of my neighbors, and unless they are uh, they make curry. So like all, uh, you know, former colonies of, of, of UK and now I will make it. And when people come over and they they talk about Scotland, either of a very specific way after going to 10 of the top 20 fish and chips places, and I like them, then ask about the kind of batter, the kind of fish, the temperature and what they fried it in. Or I got really into curry and wanted to know how to make it. My I make different things when friends come over because I was transformed in that. Uh, the same thing like with the example of one of my Hindu friends from high school going back and being like, my bad, you're not a uh, – you're not a polytheist that hasn't evolved to real religion. Uh, in fact, you're the metaphysical intuitions that you were trying to communicate to me. I think I deeply share now. And I'm down for the dual aspect monism of the Vedanta tradition. You know, like the, the that all those changes and things, like when I think of what you you asked, Jay, about your own religious tradition and text and stuff, and then like art and nature and friendship and things, their wisdom traditions at their best teach you what a a humble and life-giving hermeneutic is in relationship to your tradition. So you obviously will embody it and pass it on well. But that hermeneutic of the divine, where God is where we live, move, and have our being, is something we can then apply to all encounters with the other, be it aesthetic encounters or physical encounters, and these kinds of things. Tripp, I've got a, a friend that plays in my band that doesn't drink tends to be very optimistic in orientation toward life, doesn't have it an easy time talking about tragedy or the dark side of things, but loves to sing the blues and loves to sing country songs about being drunk. Mm -hmm. and, and I've often said to him, you know, why, what's going on there? And it made me wonder if sometimes music functions as I don't know what word to use here. You can help me. A substitute, an opportunity to vicariously experience things that we ourselves can't experience, but somebody can, and music enables us to do that. Well, it's it, the same as the songs in a way, but I guess yeah, it's how music— But it's not a— I wouldn't know if it was like so much as a substitute as the reason blues is powerful isn't because— no one else knows how to play three chords and repeat the same six sentences for three minutes. It's it's because in the simplicity, in the in the repetition, much more gets itself done, right? And um, 
and 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 it gives in the in the rhythmic experience of playing the blues there is this uh the attentiveness is different similar uh reggae functions that way if you just listen to a reggae album i would be like oh i like these few songs or whatever then we lived next to a reggae club and i went to see it live enough and it's a completely different experience when everyone's moving in the same thing and then all of a sudden for some reason they're singing a what you as a religion scholar think is a really weird way of interpreting passages of the prophets to associate with the figure in Ethiopia, but it's also connected to black liberationist traditions. And like, you're sitting there, if you were just doing the surface, you'd be like, I don't know. But all of a sudden, like you realize that they're telling their story deeply also helps you understand places within you where you have internalized the logic of oppression from different cultural, social, institutional masters, and you want liberation and want to seize it. And then you're all in this space, and then the, we all have different you know, different domination systems that we've internalized to repress or, or, or squish things out, but that, that music makes a space for it. In the same way, I think blues makes a space for you acknowledging uh, the deep struggle and pain that's there. Um, there, there's that, uh, uh, a line in, uh, James Cone's big book on like, looking through the spirituals, through blues and jazz and such. And, and he, he said that it was the gift of black music to America was reintroducing the tragedy of life in the context of hope, right? So it, because it is all, you're telling the truth when everyone else is nodding saying, I know what you mean. But you don't know what the, the blues writer means, not because your baby snuck out the back door to meet another man. But we all know when you feel betrayed and that deep experience of what I thought was my space, safe space has been uh, it, it been struck. You Like these kind of like we know that guttural feeling. And then that's the solidarity point. But we don't have words to say the truth about it to most people in our relationships. Um, and when you mentioned the Psalms there, I think the similar thing. Uh, is true about uh, liturgy. Uh, one of the UCC churches I worked at in Los Angeles was the kind that was so progressive they're uncomfortable with the notion of sin. So they changed the confession of sin, and I put it back. And we, you know what happens? Few people are uncomfortable, and they want to have a theological conversation, which it only takes a few months for me being the minister for people to decide whether or not they really want to go have the theological conversation with me. But the funniest part, was someone come up and say, oh, Trip, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't like the idea of the confession, but I really, really like it. I had multiple people saying this, and eventually I was interested. Why? So why? What, what do you like about having it back? I don't, I, was, I don't think I've heard my husband apologize in years. Is it because if you ask the husband that he thinks he's perfect? No. Uh, but what has his mouth not learned how to do? Name it. And how do you learn how to name it in a congregation? Because what happens at the beginning? Someone whose goal is serving the church on God's behalf names the presence of God, thanks God for God's presence, affirms the reality of divine love that has was with you as you entered this space and will be with you when you go. And in that context, we get to say this, forgive me for I have sinned and name it from the individual to the systemic 
And at the end of it, someone quoting Jesus gets to say your sins are forgiven. Now, whatever you think about it theologically, it was interesting to me because these people were not ones that were interested in the theology. But what happened was the form, be it blues music or a confession, gives you practice at letting you externalize things you don't know how to. And what did the partner hear the other partner doing? Being honest, saying what they knew the other one thought, but they didn't have a context or the language or the ability or a context of grace and affirmation to do it. And so let me hear, yeah, let, let me hear you reflect on another kind of music and let me set the stage for it. I'm going to call it, for lack of a better word, psychedelic music mm-hmm. or, or shamanic music. That is music that stretches the imagination and takes you into, into um, actually a plurality of realms with which you had been unfamiliar. And so early on, I think Dylan's lyrics functioned that way uh, for a good many people. They were so associationist. You, you mm-hmm. didn't understand them. The beauty was you didn't understand them. You could live with them, but you couldn't get a single message or a point. They weren't protest music. They, they were shamanic music. Yeah. What do you think is the role of, I'll call it the polytheistic imagination. Um, that, would, that would be another way to put it. It's, it's the imagination that moves beyond preoccupations with unity uh, uh, into a, an acceptance of, of plurality as such without needing to pin it down mm-hmm. into a point, including a theological point. What do you think the role of that kind of music is um, in society today, but also in how would you understand that in process terms? Oh, okay. So uh, here's what comes to mind. You tell me if this is helpful, and we'll see how much Jared has to edit. Um, well, so those kinds of art pieces, I think uh, their power is the revelation that uh, we have all been subject to the logic of the one be it in Mm. any way, or uh, a kind of concreteness that cuts us off from the fullness of life, if we're thinking in uh, process uh, vocabulary. Uh, Actually, the place that I first connected these dots and then thought, how do I do those things in a worship context more often, was in Paul Tillich. Now, I was in high school the first time. I asked some question to my dad, handed me Paul Tillich sermon books. And then I went through them all and was like, what's next? He's like, well, here's dynamics of faith or, you know, and was kind of going through um, my, when I was eight, when my wife and I met at 18 and uh, the first Christmas, she got me first editions of all three volumes of a systematic in the tricolored fold. And I'm like, whoa, what's up, baby. And one of the big things in Paul Tillich's uh, ongoing reflection about uh, uh, idolatry, when he thinks about it philosophically, is he says that um, God or, or the unconditioned is like the source of all things, and it can claim any contingent reality can become a symbol or an event or a breakthrough or an encounter with the divine. Now, one of the, the problems with theology is that it is always a second-order discourse, reflection on the dynamic relationship of symbols for the life of a community. They, symbols can come and go and die and such, and all this kind of thing. But if you if you take the notion that a lot of things, because they're trusted, because there's wisdom in it, there's a set, and uh, or you think of even in set theory, like there's a bunch of contingent particulars that are bound up, and then once the brackets go around it, it now acts like it's just one variable, when it's really 
right? Like if we we know the history of Christianity, you tell me what the the narrative is. Well, I know if you were in Alexandria in the early church, the problem is that you don't lack orienting yourself pedagogically towards the ultimate. But if you went down uh, to Antioch, they're going to frame it differently, and Tertullian's going to complain about both of those options until he meets a female with the Holy Ghost, and then we don't know what he thinks because it was so heretical no one kept any of it, right? But all of those visions would take the narrative of Israel and life of the church and their philosophical ideas, and they call it the truth or the one, the logic or, or the gospel or whatever. Now on a street corner, we have 50 versions of those, right? And so the liberating part, I think, of those psychedelic types of experiences or the breakthrough or the event of revelation outside the one is that once you reveal something outside the set, it, it does two things. One, it tells you there is something more than the one. But the other thing is it says that the power of the one is not that it's singular. It's actually the dynamic relationship of all these particulars and the way it functions. So like once something outside the set, that's all these contingents that are bottled up as a singular truth, it, it, when that becomes an event of the divine, then the contingency and particularity of everything in the one is revealed. If it is idolatrous, it resists that recognition and wants to erase silence, kill, call heretical, anything that reveals the contingency of the, the big story that is being shared. But if the if those that are in that tradition don't recognize it, uh, don't have a kind of authoritarian understanding of it, then that revelation is an invitation of difference uh, that can be engaged, that can be transformed. If you took that second order theological discourse and then did all of our biographies, there would be like the version of trip he had growing up. And then there are these friends and he has to make sense of it. Does he either judge them, uh, condemn them, hide from them or whatever, or does his account of reality have to start including this and how do you include it? And then it, it, the vision starts to grow and it changes and it grows and it changes because you recognize the flow of life in relationship to divine. It is a real, it is all always growing, evolving and changing. So you don't need to spend your energy doing a cover-up that it happens to be a set of contingent things. Because why? Because the unconditioned is connected to all of it. The question is, in what ways does it grabbed and seized you? Let's go there. But does that make um, sense why this the those Yeah, no, it's things, great. You know, if you if you listen to your favorite album and you have a long relationship with it, and then Jared and I are like, Oh, I know those three songs off Blonde on Blonde that are on the greatest hits album our parents had in the car. Then we hear these other songs like, oh, that's wild. Uh, I didn't I, know about that. Uh, uh, well, I confess I'm trapped within many logics of the one uh, because I think that what I like is uh, there's a tendency. Now, this is true and this is normative and everybody ought to like this. They don't see it. Uh, but I want to I want to take this in a direction. I want to talk about God. It's easy for people to think that God names an ultimate source, a something of which all things are manifestations or, or emanations. That's the Neoplatonic perspective. But you see it, I see it, yeah, even in Tillich. God is the ground of being, the ground of being, not a being among beings, but the ground of being. And an interesting feature of Whitehead's thought is that for him, God is not exactly the ground of being. He, he names the ultimate uh, creativity. Right. 
And he says a whole lot of things about it, and it's not all consistent. But he's pretty clear that both God and the world, and he, he says this, are in the grip of something more. And he uses that phrase, in the grip of something more, of a creativity. And in dialogue with Buddhists, um, that, that's rung true. Amida Buddha the, the, um, is not the Dharmakaya. The Dharmakaya is this fathomless something, neither good nor evil, without preferences. But then there is, in addition, Amida Buddha. And John Cobb says what what Amida, what Pure Land Buddhists mean by Amida is kind of like what God, what Whitehead meant by God, not the ultimate reality, but in a way, yes, a being among beings, yes, um, albeit everywhere and and markedly different and everlasting, etc. What what do you make of that? Does does that challenge you, um, or can you link that with this with what you said five minutes ago about the logic of the one? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, now, the the reason the logic of the one and the the conditioned unconditioned thing was helpful is like that was the person I was wrestling with when I first had those questions, right? And you know, there are other questions where the person I wrestled with when I had them was reading process thought. <laughs> so the yeah. the like when you ask a question in the bio, biographical frame, it's like who did I talk this out with? I would say just for people that are interested in Tillich, in volume three of his systematic, I think he uh, breaks rank on his own uh, ontology and the spirit of life and these kinds of things have causal traction with reality in ways that his ontology doesn't allow if it's internally consistent. But, you know, I was told I wasn't internally consistent in an article. So this isn't a this isn't a just I think that challenge is there in all philosophical theologies that are trying to, one, uh, if you're Christian in some way, talk about how uh, um, ultimate actuality, if you're thinking process, was present in some unique, distinctive, transformative way in Christ, in the person of Jesus and the Christ event and the structure of Christian existence that flows out of it and such, and that that dynamic of the one and the many increasing by one that, that is the dynamic where that's taking place. Um, but if you imagine that and you're thinking about God, then there's some vision of the divine that is not a metaphysical exception. You can't just imagine that dynamic living covenanting image if you use Hebrew scriptures or or incarnating image if you're thinking of, of, of the Christ. Like those things are could be revelatory of reality, but they are not a a forsaking of the rest of reality. Now that picture of dynamic relationality is something you are going to have to use when reflecting about other wisdom traditions. Other, I think, especially in a uh, kind of post Christendom context uh, culture, and this is something Tillich made a big deal of, is like Christendom used to be culture. It's not anymore. The humans mm. still ask these same big questions over and over in each and every context. And this is something in David Bentley Hart's book on uh, the experience of God, I think he gets that really well, right? It is that there is a, it, the wisdom traditions are stuck trying to ask, how does the shared solidarity of all finite things connect with the valuation of flourishing and non-flourishing, good, true, beautiful, all these dynamics. Like, you know, for, for for Whitehead, it's like the forms and the aim and the response of the individual, but the, the valuation in some sense uh, and uh, the recognition that you do not have it in and of yourself to access the big, pure, accurate vision. 
religious traditions are stuck in this dynamic of like shared solidarity source and the dynamic of valuation in some way. Wisdom traditions give you different tools and insights or spiritual technologies or whatever for getting at it. And more is always getting itself done in those traditions than the practitioners know. I know it's true about me. I keep discovering new things and look back and go, I could judge former trip because he got really hey. into being a Calvinist at one point, and that was stupid. Or I go, well, the living and life-giving God's been a part of my whole story this whole time, and I should probably love that previous version of me that shows up in this moment just as much as my neighbor or my enemy. And so the, to me, there's this like these different kinds of questions as a philosopher of religion uh, we have to make sense of, and those things get expressed differently in different religious traditions. And so... I think, at least for me vocationally, as a theologian of the church, is how do I interpret and hand on the faith in the most beautiful and compelling way I can to those I interact with? And then how does that account of the world, does it facilitate me appreciating and celebrating beauty in other traditions? Specifically, if you're taking creativity, God, world, forms— we have process friends that if they're uncomfortable with the distinction of creativity and God, use the Godhead and the Trinity to yeah, yeah. really, like, you know, there yeah. are all different ways of doing right. it. I tend to think because the phenomenology of process is really compelling to me. I find it weird how theologians lose their biscuits talking about how things began or how things end when our access to those are minimal at best, you know? But we do have access of what it's like to experience and then experience again. And so I try to work out um, theologically. So I have a version of like every atonement theory I can muster if I need to have that one. I can argue for creation out of nothing or it's dumb. And I have my own preference. But like, but it, think of the podcast, homebrewed Christianity. I literally, I have my preference, and people can figure it out after fifteen hundred years, fifteen hundred episodes. But I think there are beautiful expressions, uh, different parts of this tradition that we cut ourselves off from so often. So I, I feel my goal is always, oh, let me, let me find the beautiful expressions of all these different parts. I'm not going to become so back, a reformed theologian. Back to you, Trip. You're a father of two. Three. Uh, Three. Yep. And and remind me, what are their names? Uh Elgin is fifteen, Cora is nine, and Haven is five. So if if your children come to you and say, Dad, when I pray, do you think someone's listening? How would you answer in terms they would understand? Well, it it really depends on which one. Okay, choose choose one. Okay, my oldest is the one that probably has my intense piety the most. We've had trouble finding a church we can all be at in Greensboro, and it it really frustrates him because he mm-hmm. really likes being involved. He snuck to Baptist. We don't do infant baptism, so uh, I had told him he had to be like an adult, a uh, teenager at least. And when he was 11, he snuck to the baptism classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the church we were going to so he could get bad. And he, I found out afterwards. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, that's not coercion. 
Uh, because some Baptists are like, oh, they got the age of accountability. The seven-year-old finally understands what it's like to die to their old self and rise to a new one and give allegiance to the way of Jesus in their life. And you're like, really? So uh, he, he, he's his own thing. So, no, but, but he asked you that question. Dad, when, when I pray, do you think someone's listening? Um, in other words, do you imagine God as in some way a being? Um, who who feels, who hears, who responds to to prayer, and it's not. It's I'm really focusing not on the efficacy of intercessory prayer. That's not the issue. It's the it's the understanding of God. Is God um, personal and different from yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, the, and so, how would you answer him so, there? Yes, I'll just say yes. I mean, if he wants a like long <laughs> explanation, but um, I mean, I you know, John John Cobb's criticism of liberal Protestants, I think is really accurate, that uh, they gave so much authority to um, modernity's vision of the world that they have forsaken the very piety that Jesus passed on to his mm-hmm. followers. Mm-hmm. How did, what it, What are the few things he told us to do? When you pray, pray this way, our Father, right? You mm-hmm. see the emphasis of Abba intimacy running through uh, John's work. That was why he became my favorite theologian when mm-hmm. I was in my early 20s, because I'm just like, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Why Why can I? Well, but are you surprised that the guy that that the uh, Methodist missionary kid who grew up in Japan um, it could, understands a bit of process vision, the faith in a way that the Baptist preacher kid that even when I didn't know if I believed in God, I still read the Bible and prayed every day. Yeah, yeah. You're, how do you go to bed without it? So the but, you know, for him, I think the structure of Christian existence involves saying something like the source of all things knows your name, knows your face and cares. The most true Mm -hmm. thing about you that you encounter each moment when you attune yourself to the divine is that you are the beloved of God. And that is true of you, your neighbor, creation, and your enemy to internalize the affirmation of the divine is expressed in that, in that same loving solidarity to the other, the life and gift of the gospel is that this God has not forsaken you even unto death. And whether your your own agency leads you to Sheol far away from the presence of God or in rapturous bliss that very next moment, the love of God revealed in Jesus the Christ meets you. I nuanced it in just enough way you can guess how the process person sees it. But I don't think talking about prehension uh, will communicate to one of my children uh, what uh, yeah, right. the subjective yeah. of God is ultimately <laughs> telling to me at the end of part five in process and reality. No, no, I, I don't think that'll work either. I don't recommend it. Uh, but like, here's an example, though, with Cora. Like, she's nine, right? I, I mean, you can guess Cora is not an arbitrary name here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it starts in Plato's Timaeus dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, it is this the concept that which all things participate in and nothing particularizes, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know ultimately creativity in Whitehead. Derrida, right. it cre- uh, the Cora is the play of difference, not the difference. Oh, it's so good. The but mm-hmm. anyway, Heidegger plays with it. You can see this whole trajectory mm-hmm. of this concept through the Neoplatonists on Tripp's mm-hmm. more mystical days, and then through mm-hmm. the postmodern deconstructionists, but also the Cappadocians. What was the Cora mm-hmm. when they're trying to the receptacle mm-hmm. of existence? The Cora, uh, uh, Basil says, was what was in the cup mm-hmm. at the table. This mm-hmm. is my body. This is my blood. That is the Korah. And, and that is the divine life that we are being given and woven into. And so when Korah are talking about this, I said, you know why I named you Korah? Because 
Uh, I tell, you know, a nor a nine-year-old version of that. And she goes, well, what does that mean? I said, in the early church, when they were trying to understand how God was present in this person who embodied the love of God, but also that God is the source of all things. I uh, said, so when we have uh, the Eucharist, that we are sharing in the dancing love of God. And I said, so when I say your name, I'm saying you are the joyous dancing of God. And that's true on days you know it and days you don't. And so that just, just, just core of imagine God as a, as a companion. I'm using John Cobb's language there, an Abba, an eternal companion, who in some way feels feels our feelings. And as you say, everybody's feelings and cares about mm -hmm. everyone. But it's the image of God as eternal companion, um, different from me, from us, but nonetheless receptive of us in a loving way. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I mean by the God who listens. Do you, and that's John Cobb's, you know, that's one of his deepest feelings. It's not so much God as lure. It's mm -hmm. God as companion. And I think that was Whitehead's, that was what was most important to Whitehead. Not the initial aim is actually pretty rare in process and reality. Christians weave it into this fundamental reality, but Whitehead had a sense that there's something that responds in a, mm -hmm. in a sympathetic way to everything that happens. Uh, would that, would Cora, do you think she understands God that way too? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, but you know, she also uses the language and imagery and things that she gets from her family. You know, since five, she was in a mostly lockdown, and then we move and we've visited random churches. So then, most of her religious experience, language reflection, has been with me. And I put it this way: if if religion is mostly only the things Immanuel Kant allows, like organizing around. Uh, you know, morality and such and things. And there's re then wisdom traditions are good for that, but not necessary. And the results of religious traditions that are very good at communicating the moral vision of Jesus are the worst at handing on the faith in ways that actually inspire actual giving and actual mm -hmm. use of your time for your neighbor, mm -hmm. right? Like the people whose God is the biggest asshole actually give more money and time. So, uh, and if you ask them why, yeah. you know, part of it might be they're scared, but if you actually know them, and I've had them as my congregants, they're there because they have encountered love, and this is what it's like. What do you do? You share yeah. it. And so in some sense, I emphasize those things because yeah. of yeah. It, it's important to me. Also, mm -hmm. you, I'm sure you, you've had this experience. Like, you, you know, everyone knows death, but you don't know, know it until uh, you have your kid. That is a time death becomes real in a different way. And so what is it that I hope my children, what is, what is the wisdom I can give them that I hope stays with them, even if they don't agree with it all the time or or whatever. But when they think of what mom and I give them, what are the things that are there? We came up with, uh, and it's an ever-growing list, they don't know this, but uh, Fuller Family Truths. And they get them at different points when they start to ask good questions and things where uh, like, here's a statement. And the meaning of it grows as you get older. But uh, like in the first one is the most true thing about you is you're God's beloved, right? And uh, when Haven was four, we told him. And the other two were there, the siblings, and they knew it. What is the first Fuller family truth? The most true thing about you is you're God's beloved. And what does yeah. that mean? Um, that personal bit is really important. 
there'll be times I tell you, you weren't good enough, Cora, or you should have been more lovely, or your teacher judges you or your friends do and all these kinds of things. And then sometimes you'll look in the mirror and you'll do it to yourself, or you'll look at your past and regret it. And I just want you to know, anytime someone says you're less than lovely and loved by the divine, they have a conflict with the truth of God for you. The most true, and it's above my pay grade to tell her that she's worth less than God has. And I think that is me trying to capture the heart of the piety of Jesus. It was practiced in how he taught us to pray and how he mocked people that were worried about what you could do on a Sabbath or if he could forgive sin. The authority of Jesus when he occupies it in transgressive ways in this historical context where he transgressed to say that the sinner or the hurting, or the excluded, were the beloved of God, and you do not use Sabbath law or morality to cut them off from that affirmation. And I think that's true, and if it's not, it should be. <laughs> and so that's there, right? But then they get to, uh, uh, like, uh, like, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. Then you get to, uh, um, like, our oldest, uh, when he turned 15, I gave him a pen of you know, my second favorite sacred text is Lord of the Rings, uh, of the Mines of Moria, right? And this is entering um, an, a, a, a destroyed dwarven stronghold, but it, it, in Elvish over it, because they had an ongoing conflict, elves and dwarves. It's a speak, friend, and enter. Then you speak it in Elvish, and then the door to the dwarves open. And I said, um, the greatest gift in life, this is, I guess, rule six, the greatest gift in life is friendship. And I want you to know, Elgin, that mom and I, are committed to supporting and encouraging you so that we end up just being friends. And this pins on here because you're 15. Now, and whenever you need to have a conversation with dad, you can have it. But you now have permission to tell mom and I, I want to talk to my friend, Trip, or my friend. And that yeah. is how we promise to relate to you in those moments. But that's why my favorite verse in the whole freaking Bible, you want to guess what it is? I no longer call you servants. I call yeah, you friends. That's wonderful. You know, so, uh, and then if you said, Trip, explain it in process, then I would. And I would go to, anyway, to those very things, the whole feeling with and all that kind of stuff. Right. And God's valuation for the world isn't some abstract thing that's set right. up eternal and ever. It's actually contextualized, having experienced all of existence and each moment of your life to that moment. And there, based on what's actually possible in front of you, the horizon of possibility, God gives the gift of divine valuation to you. And then we'll do it in the next, regardless of what happened. And what is that invitation? That when you start to internalize the reciprocity of responding to the divine, you actually make material the divine insistence. You actually start to create habits and are formed by the wisdom of divine love and context. And that creates more space, more possibility for the next moment. And that gets to the place, right, where the proper response, success as a parent is, you're no longer my kid, you're my friend, or you're no longer the dumb disciple that doesn't get what I'm doing, you're my friend, or feed my sheep, or let the same mind be in all of you that was in Christ Jesus, or that uh, this, the sin, law, and death have become subject to the Son. Why? So that all things can come to participate in the divine life. There's this, the, the picture of divine participation in Scripture starts with these strangers becoming a community that are then empowered friends to part 
invite people to participate in the kingdom of God. In the life of, in the letters of Paul, you see these churches or outposts, alternative communities where the mind of Christ that did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, shapes those people and encounters the other and helps uh, their communities. These kinds of participatory growing images mean that when there's this reciprocity of internalizing the divine valuation, your agency and freedom goes up. But it is a freedom to actually participate with the divine grain and call of the universe, not a kind of freedom for the modern individual that demands rights from everything around you and this kind of thing. I, in that you can see it, the shift from servant to friend, uh, from follower to leader, from uh, I called you to I empowered you, right? In the synoptics, he sends out the 12. And then in Luke, he sends out the 70 to do what? The very same things Jesus came to do. It, he wasn't just like breakthrough into the world where it fixes everything and you can cling on as he pieces out. It was, a, it was an eruption of the Spirit of God wrestling in the life of Israel all the way into Mary and Jesus and the disciples of this community, and you get to be a part of it. And when you do, what happens? You're recognized as friends of God. Why? Because what kind? What do you do with your authority and your faith? You transgress boundaries that don't recognize the belovedness of your neighbor and your enemy. You transgress yeah. the expectations of institutions and societies that say that other human beings aren't valuable. You recognize the way you're connected to people that are destroying others and are non-creaturely neighbors. Like to me, that 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 big movement. Like uh, him becoming my friend and all my kids hopefully doing it is it is is really like what did success look like for Jesus that <laughs> that the the people of God uh, participate in the mind of Christ and I so these kind of the larger process vision really has shaped how I think about succeeding <laughs> in whatever being faithful as a parent it did so as a minister and. I don't know, you know, officially when the uh, metaphysical traction of my vision or the theological poetics disappear into just adiaphora and, and uh, you know, speculation upon speculation. But I think that one of the things that the process vision helps with, it is it's just important for your life to be grounded in the real in reality as it is, as it is to be seized romantically and erotically by the possibility of what it could be. Yeah, and yeah, I agree. Too often we too often yeah. we inflate the poetics of transcendence on on like these like uh we're squishing well, it. Well, I think I think we can overemphasize um adventure and underemphasize uh friendship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you know, I, I want to be friends with with people now, wherever they are. I'm I'm your friend. And that's that's very important. There also needs to be a sense of adventure, of fresh possibility, of excitement, that kind of thing. But that's really not enough. And so I really like your theme of friendship. I've never thought of the ministry of Jesus as, among other things, centered in the possibility of friendship. And in a way, setting a wildfire of friendships, a tsunami of friendships, you know, that's what it's about. Let's share this possibility mm -hmm. of deep, of, of friendship. And it's interesting to think about that. I, I mean, I'm all about human-to-human -human friendships. It's also interesting to think about that in relation to the more-than-human world, what that can mean. Um, friends with the earth. I didn't invent that phrase, as you know. But to think about what that really means. And for that matter, friendship with animals. What does mm -hmm. that really mean? Here we go. But Tripp, you, you, um, 
you're so good and, and your thoughts are so um, rich and inviting and exciting. And it's been great today to get to hear you. And I wish we could go another hour. I don't think we can because Jared's got to edit this thing. And if he has too much to edit, it will never get edited. Well, so I, for- I want you to know, I, I, I absolutely love you as a public, like a public scholar. I think uh, that your time, attention, and then responsiveness to people over time at trying to communicate the process vision in ways that celebrate the different ways it's expressed in different religious traditions, different arts and stuff, but also that you put, you, you model what it's like to charitably connect the dots between um, cultures of transcendence that are, are too often siloed. And you do it by like, you don't bear false witness. And you, sometimes you re, you respond to those of us in the process community that are overzealous to make connections to like preserve the difference that's there. And, and other times you reframe things that are cherished at different parts of life that, that with the larger process framework, we see our, we see elements of solidarity and connection that we don't. I mean, I'd always followed you online and liked you and that kind of thing. But when we, when you and John and I did the class in Canada together and, and listening to how you took so seriously the task of teaching and how your students and your kids and your neighbors and the, in the individuals you spend time with singing each week, that you took their lives and experiences so seriously that they retaught you how to do what you were trained to do. Um, I think that is one of, it was so beautiful, beautiful to me and compelling that it made me not want to miss when you publish things. And I'm always excited to see you. It's one of the reasons I love this podcast and I have been interviewed, I don't know, 40 or 50 times. And most of these questions are not ones I've been asked before. And uh, so I was super pumped. Let let me, let me say, um, and, and this is true. I want to be a friend of Jesus the way you describe that friendship. I, I want to walk in his footsteps as you present it. And uh, I feel, despite my um, no boundaries openness and let there be plurality and reframe things, uh, I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of Christianity is, is to share in the journey of Jesus as best I can. Do you, and, do you and, and, and feel that? the presence of Jesus' Abba as best I can. And you give me new eyes for what that means. That means sharing the good news of friendship as, as a genuine possibility for us. Um, so I'm really grateful to you. And I, and I think you're brilliant besides. Uh, so, you know, you've got that deep insight and you've got that remarkable intellect and imagination. So uh, I do hope that this is one of the few occasions that you've gotten to talk about music. And, and maybe not. Maybe maybe you get to theologize about music all the time. But I really liked that part of our conversation. Well, for Jared's sake, let's close all this right. off. All right. Thank you, Jared. Take care. Yeah, no problem. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.